Hello and welcome to another episode of uh, T-Rex Talk, the podcast exclusive. This is going to be a relatively short episode, I believe. We're going to do some stuff that we said that we were going to do with our safer off-social-media content. We're going to talk about slightly spicier stuff on the podcast and with the email newsletters because we can and because the, the level of attention and scrutiny and control that we're starting to see on the social media platforms is going up. So today we're going to talk about the January 6th event that uh, that happened a year ago. It's been a year. We've had some time to think about it. And now we're going to talk about it uh, a little bit more than we did at the time. I don't know if you remember this, but at the time, last year during January 6th, the day, uh, we were doing a T-Rex YouTube live stream and we were watching the news and it was really hard to tell what was going on and it was really hard to figure out what we wanted to say about it. And now that we've had a year to think about it, we've got some thoughts. And I don't want to imply that we're not allowed to talk about January 6th. In fact, you're very much allowed to talk about January 6th. Uh, a lot of people are talking about it. You're just not allowed to question the narrative uh, in the same ways that you are allowed to push the narrative. So the sheer number of people talking about the one-year anniversary of the January 6th event and treating it like an event that is more important and more serious and far more heartbreaking and far more damaging than anything that we have ever had live in infamy before. A worse event than December 7th, uh, a worse event than September 11th, that is something that I've seen a surprisingly large amount of people push. Now, for the record, I'd just like everyone to remember that there were over 2,400 Americans killed during the Pearl Harbor attack. There were almost 3,000 people killed during the September 11th attack. And we actually had some fatalities during that January 6th event. One person was shot uh, and a few people died of heart attacks. But it, it appears that most of those people died of heart attacks outside of the Capitol building. Because remember that while this thing was happening inside the Capitol building, there was also a gigantic political rally. Very possibly the largest political rally or gathering of people that Washington, D.C. has ever seen in its entire history. That was happening outside the Capitol building. And the, the media has really downplayed that. At the same time, they've tried to rope everybody that went into the Capitol building. Uh, they, are, they are really guilty of a lot of different things. And also the people who were outside of the Capitol building, that was also a huge, uh, a huge problem. And, uh, but, but also there weren't that many. But there were a lot of people outside. Uh, a number of people died of heart attacks. Um, somebody was beaten to death with a fire extinguisher inside. That was widely reported, and then that turned out to not be true. But at this point, I think that we've had more police officers commit suicide since the event uh, than anyone ever claimed died during the event. <sighs> That's probably a topic for another day. But uh, it was a crazy, a crazy event. And the footage from it is just... Uh, hilariously disjointed and convoluted. You see little old ladies carrying American flags walking through Statuary Hall very carefully, very primly, very properly uh, through the lines, staying inside of the velvet ropes. Uh, you see policemen welcoming people inside. You see an air of partying. Uh, and then you see some genuinely uh, unruly behavior. You see people taking selfies of themselves inside of one of Washington, D.C.'s largest tourist destinations. It's really, uh, I mean, it's it's really heartbreaking, uh, heartbreaking to see. And then, of course, there was Buffalo Man. Buffalo Man is still bonkers to me. If The Simpsons recreated the January 6th event and inserted Buffalo Man as a character, a QAnon shaman, everybody would laugh, but then they'd say like, yeah, see, this kind of over-the-top thing is why Old Simpsons is better than New Simpsons. Like, it's completely unbelievable. I'm not saying I don't believe it. I'm just saying 
what a preposterously bonkers event this is that is being portrayed as a great threat to American democracy and a coup. Because here's the issue. The issue is that a bunch of clowns went into a public building at a time when they weren't supposed to be there, and a bunch of people reacted in various different ways. But that isn't enough of a story. The story has to be that the hallowed seat of government has been defiled because government is no longer just public servants. It's not just our representative. It's not just people who have been sent there by we the people to these buildings that we have just because they need a place to meet. No, no, no. The Capitol building is now not just a public building, but a sacred temple to the majesty of the state itself. To defile this building is the greatest blasphemy against the sovereign state that can possibly be imagined. It is, it is insurrection. insurrection. Now, uh, let's probably pause right here. I want to talk about the importance of the meanings of words. So insurrection is a word that wasn't really in the media a whole lot until a year ago. And insurrection has been promulgated as the most vile, the most unacceptable, the most unforgivable thing that a person can do against the state. And therefore, the worst thing that a person could possibly do in America, period. It's an even worse label than white supremacist or nationalist or racist. A insurrectionist is a person who is committing unspeakable blasphemy against the majesty of the state. An insurrectionist is an unbelievably incomprehensible threat to everything that matters. So let's actually see what that word insurrectionist means, because like I said, didn't really pop up a whole lot until fairly recently. Now, Here's why I think words matter, and the definitions of words are extremely important. If you want to talk clearly about ideas, you have to use words. And if you want to talk about the important ideas of history, you have to define your words in the same way that they were defined in the past. We get into this issue when we talk about the Second Amendment a lot, and I'm going to bring up the Second Amendment several times during this short conversation. The Second Amendment says that uh, we need a well-regulated militia in order to preserve certain freedoms. And that word regulated is something that gets redefined by modern definitions all the time, and very rarely do people actually want to go back to the literature or the definitions of the time of the founders to determine what was actually intended by that word. Postmodernism says that we all get to have our own truths, and modern dictionaries say that we all get to have our own definitions. And there's a great example of this. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but during uh, Amy Comey Barrett's 2020 Supreme Court hearings, she mentioned uh, people's sexual preferences. That phrase, sexual preferences, came out of her mouth. And the minute that it did, people started to complain that that was an offensive term. It had not been an offensive term prior to that. In fact, there were a bunch of people on the Internet with different sexual preferences saying, hey, this is, this is not an offensive term. This is a term that we were using literally yesterday. But the, uh, the people interviewing her, the people involved in that hearing that were pushing back against her nomination, decried her for the use of such an incredibly hostile, offensive term. And then the very next day, uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which is online, and which, of course, had included sexual preferences as a very important part of the word preference, the definition of the very word preference, they included that. The very next day, they changed that so that anyone who uses the word sexual preferences or uses the phrase sexual preferences when using the word preference are using it offensively. 
So people who are capable of changing the definitions of these words, they are trying to define the way that people understand things that have been said in the past. Like Amy Comey Barrett no longer made a statement about what she believed human liberties are. She made an offensive statement demeaning other people as defined by the very dictionary that we have to use to look up these words in. So I like to go back to an earlier dictionary that hasn't been allowed to change. I like to go back to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, and uh, let's, let's read the definition for insurrection. Uh, it is from the Latin word insurgio, which means to rise. It is a noun, and they give uh, a couple of different definitions. The first is a rising against civil or political authority, the open and active opposition of a number of persons to the execution of a law in a city or a state. It is equivalent to sedition, except that sedition expresses a less extensive rising of citizens. So an insurrection is a large group of the citizenry are opposing a law openly, not quietly, not a small group, not secretly, but a large number of people are actively and openly opposing a law. It differs from rebellion, for the latter expresses a revolt or an attempt to overthrow the government and establish a different one or place the country under another jurisdiction. It differs from mutiny as it respects the civil or political government, whereas a mutiny is open opposition to law in the army or navy. And then it goes on to, to a couple of other definitions. But this is, this is a very important point. And it's very important to remember that this is the kind of thing that the founders had done just a few years prior. If you remember uh, how the Declaration of Independence goes, uh, it starts like this. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. So this idea that Thomas Jefferson is putting forward in the Declaration is an insurrection. A number of people are openly declaring that they are dissolving some of these relationships. They are resisting some of these laws. And then obviously there's the part that, that talks about the inalienable rights that, uh, that people have been endowed with by their creator. And we, we know these rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all this stuff. But then Thomas Jefferson goes on to say, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute a new government. So the ability to resist, the ability to reform, the ability to rise up and create a new government to replace one that is evil is a human right, says Thomas Jefferson. This was the idea that the founders had. This was the justification for everything that they did. And they gave in the Declaration a list of the offenses of the British crown against them. And they said, when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them, these people, under absolute despotism, it is their right it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. So it is not only a right of a people to be insurrectionists, it is a duty to such a people to be insurrectionists when they are placed under this, this level of, of offenses. So Thomas Jefferson is a great believer in the divine right of resistance, uh, like all of the founders. And believe it or not, there's a statue of Thomas Jefferson inside the Capitol building. Um, it's actually the first full-size statue that was placed there. George Washington is in there. Many founders uh, who were uh, insurrectionists are remembered in the Capitol building. They weren't rebellionists. Um, they weren't mutineers. They weren't anarchists. They weren't seditionists. 
They were engaged in a very careful and a very deliberate and a very legally defined insurrection against a tyrannical government. And so, well, first of all, shame on the current status for trying to make insurrection such a shameful concept. And then secondly, though, I would say the January 6th mob were not insurrectionists. They were demonstrators. At best, they were petitioning for redress for wrongs. At worst, they were just a mob. In that crowd of people, including the Buffalo Man, you see a lot of mob mentality and you see very little organization. Uh, The FBI (laughs) even admitted that there was no organization. There were definitely some unruly acts that would fall uh, under the definition of sedition or rebellion more than insurrection. Now, there's a couple of takeaways here that I want to cover as as we close. The first is that one of the things that is so disturbing or annoying to the people who are watching all of this happen is that the same people who did all of the gasping and all the horrified pearl clutching at the this insane act of insurrection that was happening inside of the very Capitol building were the same people uh, who watched the uh, cities burn in the summer of 2020 and said, no, this is fine. This kind of resistance, this kind of rebellion, this kind of looting and burning of different stores, this is the voice of the voiceless. So this is really an excellent thing that we are seeing here. They said the exact opposite when they saw something far tamer, but in some ways equally rebellious inside of the Capitol building. It really is a double standard on the face of it. Now, I think it is something a little uh, more consistent if you dig down underneath there. What we're seeing is two sides who are looking at molehills. One side is looking at the molehill of this very, um, this very crazy-looking thing that happened inside of the Capitol on January 6th and declaring it to be the biggest and most disruptive mountain range that our country has ever seen. And then we have the other side looking at these very small molehills that happened inside of the Capitol building and saying they don't exist at all. And this is a very, very easy trap to fall into. I fall into this trap all the time, more so when I was younger. Something would happen, which was a molehill. I would try to get people to take it seriously. And when they wouldn't, I would exaggerate the molehill into mountains. It's a very natural reaction to wanting people to take things seriously because you take them seriously. And it's a very common reaction when people are taking things seriously that you don't take seriously to minimize those things so that they won't take them as seriously. So first takeaway is we need to be more clear and more precise. If there are molehills, we need to be able to describe what those molehills are, how big they are, and how big of an issue it is without exaggerating them into mountains or diminishing them into nothing. And the second thing is there does need to be a little bit more consistency. People are looking at the exact same molehills in different parts of the country at different times and for different reasons and exaggerating those up or down according to their own uh, political whims and their desires of the takeaways they want people to have. So that's a double standard. However, there is a deeper and underlying issue that I want to get us back to. A lot of the people who were utterly horrified by the attempted coup that January 6th was, by the incredible defilement of this holiest of holies, this magnificent temple to the power and implacability of government herself, they definitely saw that very differently than a target being looted because they see the edifice of government itself far differently than they see just a target. And this is the ultimate underlying problem. The disconnect when it comes to defining what government is, and not just government as a philosophical concept, but our actual government, the federal government of the United States of America. 
For those people who truly believe that the government of the United States of America is the highest possible power, it is sovereign, it is omniscient, it is infallible, those people are far more offended, based on that presupposition, by people going in and taking selfies in the Speaker's office than people who think that government exists as a force that must be limited by the Constitution because it serves us the people. That underlying interpretation of the purpose of government and the limits of government is really the issue that is at hand, not what is better to break into or break. And you see this in the conversation about the Second Amendment itself. If you believe that the United States government is a terrible servant and a fearful master, as George Washington said, and is something that should be limited by the Bill of Rights, then you will see the Second Amendment as an extremely important thing that must be preserved for the very purpose of protecting citizens from their own government. But if you believe that government is the highest purpose and the highest arbiter and the highest power that needs to exist, then, well, obviously that omnipotence must have the monopoly on violence that the government wants. And anything that's going to create limitations or speed bumps for that government, that omniscient, powerful sovereign, well, that just doesn't make sense and really needs to go away. And this idea of government as God, essentially, is something that you see really come into full force in the mid-1800s. The idea has been kicking around Europe throughout the Enlightenment, but in the mid-1800s, there is a significant bit of political division in the United States. There's a bunch of states which are, uh, let, let me think here, uh, we'll just say they're geographically sort of southish, and then there's a bunch of other states which are sort of geographically northish, and they are starting to have a beef, or technically, to be more accurate, several beefs. And the federal government, which again has been founded by George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and a whole bunch of other people who believe in the ability, not just the ability, but the right, and not just the right, but the duty of citizenry to be able to dissolve and reform their own governments, that federal government decides that states should not be able to dissolve the political bands that hold them together. And you see a little bit of a rebranding taking place. Obviously, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington stay as hallowed figures inside of the federal buildings, and yet they get restyled in a bunch of different ways. For example, the Capitol Dome artwork, when you go in and you look up at this amazing dome, what you see is a painting that is known as the Apotheosis of Washington. It is a picture of George Washington rising to the heavens in glory. He's draped in the kind of unraveling toga that you see in all the Greek artworks. He's surrounded by these female figures that represent fame and glory and victory and liberty. And, and it's, it's an extremely symbolic picture. And the word apotheosis literally means the raising of a person to the rank of a god. George Washington stops being one of the insurrectionists that helped build this country, and he becomes one of the gods of this particular state. Thomas Jefferson stops being one of the insurrectionists who helped this nation achieve his freedom, and he starts being this brilliant, implacable, irresistibly perfect thinker. Now, that, that, that kind of goes away uh, because of certain other issues that come up in the 90s and the 2000s. But the rebranding of the founders, not as insurrectionists, but as the high priests of this unimpeachable federal government that can never be dissolved, that can never be reformed, that can never be restructured or even questioned, that idea starts to really get put into place. Which is why I think it demonstrates actually some level of ideological consistency when you see people freaking out at the fact that a whole bunch of uneducated yahoos 
uh, some of which dressed up in buffalo heads, are able to just go into that hallowed ground, that highest temple of the sovereign state. They didn't even take off their shoes when they walked on the holy ground. They just went straight into the speaker's office. There was a guy who looked like the J.P. Awakens guy carrying around the podium with his grubby human fingers. The sheer magnitude of that level of blasphemy really only makes sense if you understand the way that a number of people have begun to think about the government itself. The federal government of the United States is God walking on earth. By that definition, yeah, it was an, it was an attempted coup. It was a defilement of a holy place. And that's one of the most interesting things about the fallout and the take of the January 6th event. In my opinion, it doesn't just represent uh, double standards. It doesn't just represent um, the media's desire to paint everybody that they hate with as evil and broad a brush as they possibly can, even though we definitely see these two things. I think that it genuinely reveals the way that a lot of people think about our federal government and the sheer disconnect that exists at that deep fundamental ideological level really plays out in some very interesting ways. So as we talk to people about the First Amendment and talk to people about the Second Amendment and talk to people about things uh, like the January 6th event, this deep fundamental ideological disagreement, this total, um, totally opposed concepts of what government is really should be uh, taken into account. And when you read what the founders wrote and you read about what the founders did, you have a much better understanding of how they valued government and the way that they defined it and why they would have probably embraced the term insurrectionists and why they eschewed the term rebellionist. They were trying to be very careful. They were trying to be very orderly and they were trying to be very legal in the things that they did because they understood that government is something that needs to be limited. Government is something that needs to be bound. Government is something that needs to be replaceable if necessary. Which just makes the whole situation even more hilarious to me, because the people who are offended that Statuary Hall was violated by peons, that those people had the audacity to walk by statues of these godlike representatives of government, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, etc. When in fact, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, etc. would be far more offended by the way that they have been rebranded and portrayed as devotees of the eternal state than anything else that happened on January 6th. And hopefully taking this conversation down to a, a slightly deeper and more uh, fundamental level is actually helpful in clarifying some things. And hopefully continuing this conversation about the different ways that different people see different aspects of government will actually be helpful as we talk to people about Second Amendment stuff and various other fundamental rights that human beings have as related to government. <laughs> 